three times. Peter, however, brimming with pride in himself, brimming with self-confidence, brimming with his ability and capacity to bear up under the oncoming pressures, doubled down in verse 35, saying, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. But when the time came, Peter did indeed stumble on this night. As the shepherd was struck, Peter scattered. He denied any connection to the one that he had been following for three years. And yet, even though on this night, both Judas and Peter betrayed Jesus, as history has unfolded, Peter is remembered and respected and revered as a leader among the apostles a pivotal figure in the formation and the establishment of the church, a man uniquely gifted and called by God to apostleship. Even with all of his recorded imperfections, failures, and boasts, Peter is one of those that Paul speaks of in his letter to the Ephesians. When he described the household of God, when he described us, the church, as being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And Judas, on the other hand, is remembered both now and has been throughout history as the betrayer. His name is virtually synonymous with treachery and deception and disloyalty. And if someone were to refer to you as a Judas, you'd know what they mean, and frankly, you'd be insulted by the ascription, and rightly so. And while there have been groups, man, it's just fly. <laughs> there have been groups throughout history who have tried to renovate the image of Judas. They've tried to clean Judas up a little bit to present him more as a misunderstood character than a malicious one. There is a reason why today you will meet plenty of men named Peter. But put your hand up if you've ever met anyone named Judas. even though there are numerous similarities that exist between Peter and Judas. For example, if you read the Gospels, you will see that both Peter and Judas are at different times called either the devil or Satan by Jesus Christ. Judas was called, in John 6, verses 70 and 71, a devil. You remember says this, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And to Peter, Jesus once said, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There's one similarity between Peter and Judas. Another is that both of them openly betrayed Jesus on this night. Judas betrayed Jesus to the religious leaders so that they might arrest him, while Peter betrayed Jesus by denying any knowledge or any connection to Jesus when asked by a couple of servant girls in the courtyard. And as we will see in our text this morning, both Peter and Judas were grieved by their actions, and yet 
For some reason, Peter is restored to joyful service while Judas, in his grief, ends up committing suicide. What is the difference between the two? What leads one to one thing and the other to the other thing? Why is Peter, just a few weeks after this event, preaching at Pentecost and leading thousands of souls to salvation by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, while Judas lay dead in the grave, dead by his own hand? And what lessons can we learn from these two men? Why do we remember Peter so fondly and recoil at the thought of Judas? Well, let's explore those questions this morning and find out. We'll recount the story of Peter's denials and then spend a little shorter of a time on Judas. But as we look at Peter's denials, the great 16th century reformer and pastor, John Calvin, helpfully says this about this about the the denials of Peter, and I quote, The fall of Peter is a mirror into human infirmity and a memorable example of God's goodness and compassion, end quote. The denial and fall of Peter is a mirror into your own infirmity and a reminder of the goodness and the compassion of your God. And this is a needed reminder to each and every one of us, isn't it? Because sometimes we can read the text or as we consider the stumble, stumbles and falls, the stumble and fall of Peter here or as we look to the stumble and falls of other people around us, we can, much like Peter did, instead of being alert and awake, instead of prayer and watchfulness, instead of considering the possibility that we too, if we aren't careful, could stumble in just as grievous a way as Peter did, or we might flounder or stagger in worse ways as Peter's level of pride wells up in our own hearts because we subtly begin to see ourselves as maybe better and more spiritual than those around us. I would never deny you like these guys would. We all need to recognize as we look at this story of Peter on this night that what happened to Peter can happen to any one of us if the situation, if the stressors, if the circumstances in our lives were to overwhelm us in the way they did Peter. Our only hope, our only foundation, our only help is the strength of the Holy Spirit and our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul warns against this, for example, in the writing to the Galatian believers, who were at this moment in danger of adopting an accursed and heretical error. He exhorted them in Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then he adds, by way of warning, keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. See, Watch that you are not tempted by the very sins that you seek to restore a brother out of. Do not become what it is that you hate so much. That is a human axiom. We end up becoming, if we're not careful, the very things we hate. Make sure, or on the other hand, when you are restoring and warning your brother, make sure, keep watch, remain alert, that you don't become proud and pharisaical as you do so. Which is in many ways even much worse 
than the open transgression your brother might be committing because it's so much more insidious, isn't it? Pride in our supposed morality is, and hear me here, one of the most damning of sins. Because unlike open, flagrant violations of the commands of the Lord, which none of us can or would justify, we can so easily justify ourselves as moral, righteous people over against everyone around us because we think them less committed, less moral, less spiritual than ourselves, can't we? And begin to justify ourselves in that. We can become Pharisees if we're not alert and watchful and careful. And if you want to know how the Pharisees fared, just read the Gospels with an eye to every single interaction between Jesus and those Pharisees. But as we read about Peter here, know this, it's not beneficial for any of us It's not beneficial to your spiritual growth or mine to simply wave your hand and say, what a fool Peter was. But as we read this text, to remember that at any time it could be me, if not for the Lord Jesus Christ. It could be me who denies Jesus, who refuses to acknowledge him or any connection to him. It could be me who refuses to speak for Jesus in my workplace, denying him so that I can protect my quality of life. It could be me who refuses or denies speaking about Jesus out in the world because the political pressures or the pressures of certain groups get a little too hot. It could be me who denies Jesus because I'm more concerned with hurting another person's feelings than seeing their souls saved by grace through faith in Jesus. That could be me. It probably is me, and it probably is you. And as you think about those things, remember as you look at the story of Peter that should you mess up so royally as this, Christ is merciful to Peter, and he will be merciful to you if you confess your sins, confess your denials, and be faithful to him. Now let's look at Peter. In verse 69, we read this. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. Now we know, right, that Peter had been following Jesus at a distance after the crowds had seized him and brought him to the courtyard of the high priest. And Peter was sitting in the courtyard to watch. He wanted to see the outcome of this trial. And so as Peter sat there in the courtyard, he heard the high priest's shouts of blasphemy. He heard the unified judgment of all of those in attendance saying in verse 66 that this man deserves death. Peter also looked on as the crowds were spitting in Christ's face, slapping him and striking him and toying around with him as they mocked him and blindfolded him and kept asking him, as we read in Luke twenty-two sixty-four, 64, prophesy, who is it that struck you? As all of this is happening, Peter is sitting in this courtyard, watching it all unfold, sitting, as it were, with the very people who had seized Jesus. And a servant girl came up to him. Mark tells us that she was a servant of the high priest. But even so, it seems that her boldness to approach and implicate Peter as he sat with the very people that arrested Jesus 
who probably at this moment still held the swords and the clubs in their hands, was for Peter in this moment a rather unexpected source of agitation and embarrassment. Sure, Peter could, if called upon, draw a sword and violently swing it to strike those who were trying to arrest Jesus just a little bit earlier, but now here's Peter folding at the word of this servant girl. As she says in the hearing of those around here, you were also with Jesus the Galilean. You were one of the disciples of this Jesus, weren't you? And notice that she uses the title, the Galilean. You were with you were with this Jesus the Galilean. That speaks to a common notion that those from the city, those from Jerusalem, were far more cultured than those living in the rural areas. The way that she uses this phrase, the Galilean, is kind of the same way a person from New York in our day might look down on someone from the deep south. But Peter, verse 70, denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Peter denied it. Peter contradicted her words by disowning them and repudiating them in front of the people that he was sitting among in the courtyard. And not only did Peter deny any connection to Jesus, look at where he did it. He did it in the most public forum, in front of numerous people. But notice how he did it in this first one. Notice what he said first. I do not know what you mean. I have no idea what you are talking about. You've got to be mistaken. You must be thinking about someone else. You've got the wrong guy. So you see, Peter begins his denials by saying, I don't know what you mean. And as the next ones come, he will progress from saying what to who. As we read next, when Peter went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And you remember, right? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Peter, in this moment, recognized that he should probably switch locations. And so he moved from the courtyard to the entrance. But even here, it seems like the word is making its way around. Even here, another servant girl saw him. And while the first girl directed her statement to Peter... This girl is speaking to the bystanders as she watches Peter go by. You see it, right? She said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. So again, obviously the word is going, getting around that Peter is one of the disciples and it's spreading and Peter overhears this servant girl saying it to the bystanders and again in verse 71, you read it, he denied it with an oath, I do not know this man. Peter just watched Jesus remain silent as accusers lined up to falsely accuse him. And you see the difference between Jesus and Peter under pressure here. Whereas Jesus says nothing, Peter lashes out and speaks words of foolishness, sin, and betrayal. They came pouring out of his mouth. As he denies, you see the phrase, with an oath. The oath here refers to the invocation of the divine witness. 
with the understanding that if he is lying, he is calling down upon himself penalties from the one in whose name he's made the oath. It's like Peter saying, as God is my witness, I do not know the man, cross my heart and hope to die if I'm lying. This is serious. Peter has just violated the law of God by swearing on the name of the Lord falsely. Swearing by the name of the Lord falsely. Leviticus 19, 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Peter has just profaned the name of God. Not only is he denying Jesus, now he has moved to profaning the name of the God of Israel as he's doing so. And as Peter denied knowing Jesus, notice that he spoke as though Christ were a stranger to him. I do not know this man. Even after three years of witness and discipleship, he's seeing the wonders of Christ's power and his compassion for sinners, he said, I don't know the man. And again, in verse 73, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for your accent betrays you. The news of Peter's presence, the news of Peter being one of Jesus' disciples has now come to the attention of not just the servant girls, but the bystanders, the multiple onlookers, all of those who are present in the courtyard. And the word is continuing to spread about this Galilean among them. John actually tells us that one of the bystanders that came up and asked this question was a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. John 18, 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? So among the bystanders that approached Jesus was Malchus the man that Peter had earlier tried to kill, or a relative of Malchus, the man Peter tried to kill earlier in the evening. You remember, right? Peter, the Greek construction of Peter's sword swinging doesn't intend to relay the idea that he was aiming for the ear. Peter was aiming for the neck, but his aim was bad, and he hit the ear. Certainly you are one of them, he said. Your accent betrays you. The way you talk gives you away. It's so obvious that you are one of his disciples. We can hear it whenever you speak. You and your Galilean accent. But Peter, who's already denied Jesus twice, does it again. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. So he started calling down curses on himself, in essence saying, may God strike me down right now. May he kill me at this very moment if I'm lying. I don't know him. I swear. He's not swearing like curse, like saying bad words. He's making an oath. I swear I don't know him. And may God kill me if I'm lying. And no sooner did Peter deny any relationship with Jesus for the third time 
Verse 74, immediately the rooster crowed. Luke tells us that at that moment, Luke twenty-two sixty, 60, at that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And in that moment, verse 75, Peter remembered what Jesus had told him. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Before, Peter, the rooster crows, you will refuse to acknowledge me. You will refuse to recognize any ties with me three times. And after remembering what Jesus had told him, verse 75 tells us that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter broke down and wept. Peter cried profusely. He was filled with sadness and distress. He was shocked by the foul and evil denials that he had just uttered. The sin that Peter had just committed crushed him. He knew and he understood the wickedness of what he had just done. And he was struck by the very fact that he could sin so grievously. The man who had just said, I would never do this, just did exactly what he said he would never do. He never thought he would be the one who sinned so grievously and so spectacularly. And now here he is, weeping bitterly over his sin. Peter recognized in this moment all, that all of his arrogance and that all of his boasting and that all of his self-confidence were nothing more than a mere facade. And when the time came to walk the talk, when the time came to put up, when the time, when clutch time arrived, he failed miserably. The man who announced to everyone that he would never deny Jesus has denied Jesus. Can a man like this be forgiven and restored. And you, with all of your disgraces, with all of your failures, with all of your sins, with all of your hypocrisy, with all of the times that you have denied your Lord out in the world when the pressure has been turned up and ratcheted up, each time that you have refused and failed to acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, if you're anything like me, there are times when you can put your head on the pillow at night and say, God, how could you love someone like me? Can you be forgiven? Can you be restored? Can you be set upright and sent out for the Lord's glory like Peter was? And the glorious, wonderful answer is yes. For everyone in this sanctuary this morning who has experienced the pain of disgrace, who's come up short for Christ more times than you can count, who don't think or believe that Christ could love someone who fails as much as you, that Christ could care for or use someone like you because of your repeated failure to live up to what you know Christ calls for from you. Christ's response to Peter here ought to be of great encouragement to you this morning. If you flip over to John 21, after the resurrection of Jesus, he appeared to the disciples on the sea of Gal or at the beach while they were fishing. 
And he had breakfast with them. And he said to Simon Peter in chapter 21, verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? In other words, Peter, do you still claim to love me more than all of these other disciples do? Are you still one who is devoted to me above all others? Peter, you didn't want, you rejected, you denied the suffering and crucified Messiah, which is what I am. Do you love me? And Peter replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, then feed my lambs. See, Peter in this moment declares his continuing love for Jesus. He still loves Jesus despite all of his failures. He can still say, I do love you more than anyone else. I do love you more than I love anyone else. And I love you more than anyone else loves you. And to this Jesus replied, Not, you phony, you mess up, you liar. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, then feed my lambs. Peter, you can't hide anymore. Learn from your past sins. Learn from your mistakes. Refocus, Peter. Feed my lambs. Live a life devoted and dedicated to me. Be a model for my lambs. Comfort them. Exhort them. Edify them. Discipline them for the sake of my people's growth in and love toward and imitation of me. That is denial one taken care of. Jesus asked Peter again, Simon, son of John, in verse 16, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, then tend my sheep. Peter, if you love me, then work steadily and patiently and graciously and diligently to do good for my sheep and for those who believe in my name. And then for a third time in John 21, 17, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. You see, Peter was grieved that Christ asked him three times, do you love me, Peter? Now, this is Christ's way of restoring Peter. Three times Peter denied Jesus, and now three times Jesus calls upon him to affirm his love, and three times he is commissioned by Jesus to care for, to tend, and to feed his flock. Peter, he says, in essence, don't forget your failure. Don't allow that same lack of watchfulness, that same boastful and proud spirit to dominate you again, Peter. As one who loves me, as one who lives for me, lead my people well. And in the same way that Peter was forgiven and restored for such an awful breach of faith, the Savior who restored Peter is still in the business of restoring and reconciling those with faith in him, no matter how small that faith is. However weak that faith is, he will restore you to fruitful Christian life and service. Christian disciple, do you love Jesus? Maintain a repentant, humble heart. Feed, care for, and tend 
to his people. Now contrast that betrayal with the betrayal that came from the hand of Judas and contrast what ultimately became of Peter with what became of Judas. And ask yourself, what accounts for the difference? Why is one restored while the other is not? Whereas Peter would return to Jesus, Judas took a different route. Let's explore the Judas account. Begins in 27, verses 1 and 2. When the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him, and they led him away, and they delivered him over to Pontius Pilate. So in the morning, the chief priests and the elders reconvened. They had that nighttime trial that we looked at last week. And now they've reconvened, and they asked Jesus the same questions again, this time by the light of day, in order to pronounce the verdict they'd already agreed upon in the darkness of night. And here, as they confer together, the goal of that conferring is to discuss the charges that they will relay to Pontius Pilate in order to secure the death penalty against Jesus. And Judas somehow, someway, catches wind of this. Verse verse 3, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. Now, we can't be sure how Judas saw or learned of Christ's condemnation. It could be that he stuck around to watch the proceedings himself, and he was one of the bystanders in the courtyard in that moment. It could be that he wanted to get away from there as soon as possible because, who knows, the disciples had scattered. Maybe they're going to come and get some revenge on him. Maybe the word just reached him from really quickly from some other corner. But when Judas saw that Jesus had been handed over or that he was about to be handed over to the Romans and execution seemed like a foregone conclusion... This was, for Judas, a rather unexpected outcome. He didn't think that it would get to this point. I mean, Jesus had always found a way over the last three years to get out of trouble. But now he stands condemned. He stands bound. The priests have condemned him. They're trumping up charges, and they're ready to walk him to Pilate, the governor. Perhaps Judas, being the thief that he was, hoped to line his pockets with more silver just before he decided to leave off following Jesus. He didn't want to be a disciple anymore, thinking that Jesus would once again trounce the religious leaders, find his way out, Jesus would be on his way, and Judas also would be on his way, albeit 30 pieces of silver richer. Or perhaps, as some have put forward, Judas hoped that by betraying Jesus, he could get Jesus to become the kingdom the king of the kingdom that is expected by the Jews, the earthly political kingdom in that time and place. Judas was doing what Satan had always been doing in the ministry of Jesus, trying to turn him away from the cross whereby we would be saved and turn him into a political figure. And in so doing, as the one with the money bag, he would now have as Jesus took the reins of that kingdom, an even bigger money bag from which to embezzle his funds because he was a thief. We can't be sure what the intention was. But whatever it was, when he saw that his actions ended in the crowds calling for Christ's execution and then being led off to Pontius Pilate to see that sentence carried out, verse 3 tells us he changed his mind. You see that? He changed his mind. 
Now, it might seem at first glance that Judas is repenting of his abominable deed, but the word that is used here for changing of the mind does not speak to or describe proper repentance. This word is used to describe the feelings of guilt and remorse over the consequences of what you've done, for the outcome of your conduct, the feelings of guilt that will lead us to despair over what our deeds have brought about, but not a repentance of the deed itself as a sin. This is not the word that is used to describe a genuine turning and repenting unto salvation and forgiveness. And this is the difference between Peter and Judas. The Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 sum up the difference between the two of them perfectly. Godly grief, wrote Paul, produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Did you hear that? Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Peter experienced a godly grief, while Judas experienced worldly grief. Godly grief leads to repentance and salvation and the elimination of regret. Worldly grief leads to death. And the word for death that is spoken of by Paul actually here means one's physical death, as it had for Judas. Those with godly grief recognize and understand and grieve over their sin because it's a sin. And they repent of sin as sin, because sin in and of itself is an offense to the Lord. Repentance and turning, turning away from that sin is the response of one who experiences godly grief. I don't like that evil deed. I don't like that wicked thought. I don't want it anymore. I want to turn away from it. I repent. Lord, help me, because more than anything else, the godly want to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of our Lord. More than anything else, the godly want to more brilliantly reflect the light of Jesus Christ in and to the world so that others might see him, so that others might repent of their sin and believe in his name and be saved. Hear the point. The response of those experiencing godly grief is repentance as our sin and our sinfulness elicits a sorrow in us because we recognize it as, first and foremost, an offense we've committed against God. The one who loves our souls. It's an act against the holiness of God. We see examples of godly sorrow leading to repentance for, in, for, in King David's life. You remember when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan about his indiscretions with another man's wife. And David cried out in 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And also we see it in the bitter weeping of Peter because he had sinned so grievously against his Lord. Now contrast this godly sorrow with the worldly sorrow of Judas. Worldly sorrow refers to seeing or facing the consequences of your sinful conduct. It's the feelings of remorse or sadness or regret or despair over the consequences of what you've done, not because you consider the deed itself wicked or sinful, but because of 
what the act has produced. For example, you might walk into work one day and absolutely blow up at one of your coworkers for something they've done. Maybe they ate your lunch or something like that. And then you will feel remorse over it because of what others now think of you in the workplace or because maybe the boss pulled you into his office and reprimanded you or because you had to go to human resources and deal with the repercussions of it. But you're not upset about the blowing up part. The blowing up part was the sin, but you're more upset by the consequences. You can feel remorse over hurting somebody's feelings. Because now they're going around telling everyone else what you said and ruining your reputation without ever taking into consideration what it was you said and whether that was sinful or not. While we feel bad about, or we have a sense of regret for such things, when the one with worldly sorrow and worldly grief sins, they are not focused on the restoration of their relationship with God, on repentance from their sin, but on what it has produced in and around us. We don't like the feelings of anger and pain and hurt and embarrassment and despair. We don't like the consequences, and we are grieved by them. And in that sense, worldly grief is a self-centered fixation. It cares more about what others think of us. It cares more about how, how we think of ourselves or how we feel about ourselves than it does our relationship, our right relationship with the Lord. Worldly grief does not focus on personal sin and the alienation that, from God that it produces, but focuses on what that sin has done to me, what it has produced in me, the impact of that sin in my life. It's reminiscent of Cain and his wicked sin. After his wicked sin of murdering his brother Abel, Cain never once exhibited any grief over the killing of Abel, but he cried out in grief over the consequences of that sin. In Genesis 4, 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And one of the dead giveaways that someone is experiencing worldly grief is saying or counseling another to say something like, I just need to forgive myself. Which speaks to the mistaken idea that your primary need is to solve some internal issue in you. What needs to be fixed is how you feel about yourself. When your real problem, when our real problem is sin before a holy God. What scripture tells us is not forgive yourself, that's your main problem. What scripture says is confess your sin to a God who is faithful and just to forgive you. And turn away from that sin and live according to his word and his will. Worldly grief will keep you from doing anything of value like it did for Judas. It will keep you idle. It'll keep you self-focused. It'll keep you searching high and low for some solution to your sadness and your despair. It'll keep you unable and unwilling to do anything but wallow in your own grief and self-pity. Godly grief, on the other hand, will lead to repentance, and from there you will, like Peter, in the joy of the Lord and in the joy of his forgiveness, be able to put your hand to the gospel plow and get to work in his kingdom. Worldly grief is a bad feeling that leads to a sort of paralysis in life, while godly grief is sorrow over your sin that leads to repentance, change, no regrets, restoration, and fruitful ministry. 
This is the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter's godly grief led him to repentance. Judas' worldly grief led to his death. As Pastor Kevin DeYoung puts it, there is an eternal difference between regret and repentance. Regret feels bad about past sins. Repentance turns away from past sins. Which one are you going to do? Rest in your bad feelings about your past sins or repent from them? So what did Judas, overwhelmed by worldly grief as he was, do about it? Well, the first thing he did was he tried to atone for it himself. This is worldly grief, trying to fix your own problem, trying to alleviate your own internal guilt. He sought to relieve, to soothe his internal sadness, the sadness he felt as a result of seeing an innocent man condemned because of his actions. And in 27, verse 3 and 4, we read that he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. See, Judas took it upon himself to try and fix his eternal turmoil, to atone for the overwhelming feelings of guilt and despair that he was experiencing on this night. And he did so by trying to return the money to the chief priests. He noticed what he didn't do. He didn't search out and run up to Jesus wherever Jesus was, whatever Jesus was experiencing, whatever Jesus was enduring, he didn't look for, search for, and try to run up to Jesus and say, I'm so sorry, please, please forgive me. We know Jesus would have. Judas attempted to save himself. He tried to save himself from his heartache and his agony by performing some act of penance. But as we will see, it didn't solve or address his problems. Our works of penance never do. You and I can't fix or solve our own internal turmoil. Drink can't do it. Drugs can't do it. Mantras about self-love can't do it. Throwing your 30 pieces of silver back to the chief priests cannot do it. The solution to all of our major spiritual issues, the issues that cause the great emotional upheavals is this, knowing beyond the shadow of a doubt that for you, there is now no, therefore no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And how do you lay hold on this freedom? How do you come to take hold of this promise of no condemnation that is so gloriously written in the, book of, in the letter to the Romans? Well, Romans 10.9, by confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Learn from Judas here. The money that he loved, the money he sought after to the, to the point that he would betray Jesus for it in order to fill his money bag for more of it wasn't enough to produce any happiness in him. Nor was it enough when he threw it back to clear his conscience. Worldly goods can never satisfy, nor can worldly grief lead to a clear conscience. But if we are not careful, and hear me here, it can lead to death. Judas, in his grief, said to the priests, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. I have committed a grave sin in delivering Jesus, the innocent one, over to you, seeing that you have now condemned him, this innocent blood, to death. And their response to him, what is that to us? See to it yourself. In other words, so what? Judas, that's your problem. Judas no longer served any purpose to the priests. His utility had dried up. 
And so they kicked him to the curb. This is what the world always does when you no longer serve its wicked purpose. And so now Judas is rejected by the chief priests. He's unwilling to return to Jesus. He's filled with despair and sadness and has nowhere to return, nowhere to turn. What an awful position to be in. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, after hurling them with great force onto the floor, into the temple, in a last-ditch effort to appease his conscience, perhaps maybe he hoped that these 30 pieces of silver would pay for his crimes. Perhaps he hoped that maybe the money would go to some good cause. Whatever the case, he donated his ill-gotten loot, and listen, even that was rejected. The chief priests all of a sudden developed a conscience. The same men in the process of delivering an innocent man to death by crucifixion are now concerned with the legality of putting these 30 pieces of silver into the temple treasury. So Judas can't even get that. They used it to buy the potter's field, which they would then use as a burial place for strangers in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as a place to bury foreigners and Gentiles who might die in Jerusalem so that Jewish burial grounds wouldn't be polluted by Gentile defilements. You see, no matter what Judas did to atone, his soul was so guilt-ridden, so filled with hopelessness, so filled with despondency. Truly the proverb of Solomon rings true. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Judas, seemingly with nowhere to turn, not recognizing that Jesus is a forgiving, compassionate, and merciful man. He forgave all of, the lead, all of those who called out for his death on this night when Peter preached to them at Pentecost 40 days later. Jesus forgave Jerusalem sinners who said, let his blood be on our head when they repented. Which goes to show how great the compassion and the forgiveness of mercy and mercy of Jesus is to any and all who call out to him. But Judas just didn't. You see, all of the privileges that he had as he traveled with Jesus for three years, and yet through it all he remained a devil. Through it all he remained a thief who ended up making shipwreck of his discipleship. Judas was a man who tasted the word, the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and who ended up betraying Jesus, being the instrument by which the Son of God was held up to contempt. Judas truly trampled on the blood of Christ and when he had no option left, in his despair, he made a permanent decision, ending it in his suicide. Godly grief leads to repentance without regret. Worldly grief leads to death. And we see this writ large in the stories of Peter and Judas. I don't know where you are this morning, whether you're in a season of worldly grief or a season of godly grief, or you're entering into a season of grief and you don't know which grief it is yet. The examples of Peter and of Judas are now held out and set before you. And I pray in the power of the Holy Spirit who works in all of us who believe 
in the name of Jesus Christ that you will choose godly grief. You will choose repentance, salvation without regret. That you would not allow the enemy to lead you down the path of worldly grief, despair, despondency, and hopelessness. And if you are in a Judas-type season, filled with despair this morning, filled with hopelessness this morning, almost at the end of your rope this morning, and like Judas, it feels like no matter where you turn, the clouds of gloom and darkness block your path. Know this, the word of God is true. You can turn to Jesus in repentance. You can confess your sins to him, and he is faithful to forgive. And if you are in Christ Jesus, while it may not feel like it in the moment, the promise of no condemnation is true whether you feel like it is or not. You can turn to Jesus in repentance. You can be brought out from this darkness and into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ whose arms are open wide to receive you this morning as he promised in John 6, 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So in closing, please hear the call of our Lord Jesus Christ to you this morning. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Father, we praise you and thank you for the examples of Peter and Judas. We thank you that they so closely resemble the seasons of life that we can be going through. I pray for all the Peters in here who wonder how you could love someone like them who consistently fails, consistently fails to live up to your will and your way, who, much like the Apostle Paul, wants to do good, and it ends up being the thing they didn't want to do that they end up doing rather than the thing they wanted to do. I pray that you would help us in our godly grief, to repent and to remember what Paul remembered in that, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death. Thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for all in here who, who feel more like Judas, not in the sense that he's a betrayer, but in the sense that there is hopelessness and, and despair in their life. I pray that right now that your Holy Spirit would comfort them, that your Holy Spirit would comfort them with your word and your promises promise that all who call out to the name of Jesus will be saved. Eternal life will be theirs and the sufferings of this present world are not even worth comparing to the joys that will one day be ours. And we ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.